some stories were never supposed to be told. Stories that exist in the twilight between science and the supernatural, between history and horror. Stories that speak of terrifying things. Stories that you want to hear. Stories that you need to hear. Stories that will sink their teeth in and never let you go. My name is Mike Brown, and this is Pleasing Terrors. Episode 5, Shadow of the Wolf. There is a monster haunting the history of Georgia. It hides in the woods at the edge of a small town. It lingers around a cemetery, refusing to allow one of its occupants to rest in peace. We have all heard of it, but we have never allowed ourselves to believe that it might actually be real. It is fang and claw, fur and muscle. It is memory and legend. It surfaces under the light of a full moon, and its howl is full of rage and bloodlust. It may be flesh and bone, it may be a ghost, or it may have once been something far more terrifying. This is the story of the Georgia werewolf. Most of us regard werewolves as fictional monsters. Our only experience with them is in the form of movies, television, and books. But there are people out there who claim to have encountered real werewolves. As it turns out, the state with one of the longest histories of werewolf encounters is the state of Georgia. One of the more recent documented encounters occurred just over 10 years ago. In the course of writing her 2006 book, Hunting the American Werewolf, author Linda S. Godfrey went looking for monsters, and she found them in the form of people willing to talk about the close encounters that they had experienced with what many today classify as cryptids, creatures whose existence has not been verified by science, creatures most often encountered historically in the form of folklore, and in more recent times, in the form of anecdote. She wrote about receiving a phone call at her home from a man she would later identify only as Andy. He had learned about her research and he wanted to share his story. Andy described himself as a funeral director who neither drank nor did drugs. He said that in June of 2005, he was looking for arrowheads on a piece of land that he and his friends leased about 70 miles south of Savannah. It was getting dark, and he had just walked back to his truck when he thought that he saw a deer standing in the road ahead. He turned on the truck's fog lights. What hunched in the road was not a deer, but a very large wolf. He was shocked when the wolf stood up on its hind legs and turned to look at him. He raised his rifle, but it leapt into the woods and disappeared before he could take aim. He later returned with a friend, both of them armed, and they were accompanied by a pack of mastiffs. Ostensibly, they were there to hunt wild hogs, but Andy was anticipating another encounter with the creature that he had seen on his previous visit. They were standing by the truck when it appeared in the road ahead of them. 
As it charged towards the vehicle, Andy went for his gun. His friend released the dogs. The creature again ran into the woods, and they chased after it, but it escaped. In 1940, a group of soldiers were hauling trash to a large ditch on the edge of Fort Stewart, Georgia. They were a little nervous as there were some unsettling stories being told about the area near the garbage dump. The ditch was located next to a large forested area. There were stories being told among the men about soldiers being attacked by some sort of large animal. The stories were taken seriously and guards were posted to the dump. One of them reported seeing a wolf walking around on its hind legs. When the trash detail pulled up to the ditch, they noticed what looked like a large dog picking through the garbage. They thought that it might be a wolf. They said that it stood up on its hind legs, looked at them, and then it dropped to all fours and ran into the woods. One of the oldest Georgia werewolf stories is centered on the town of Woodland, which is located in Talbot County. It is today a predominantly African-American community, about an hour and 45 minutes south of Atlanta. It is a quintessential small southern town. Time moves differently there, slower. So slow, in fact, that the present can sometimes feel very much like the past. Like most small towns, it has its stories, mostly local gossip, frequently interrupted by a, do you remember when? But beneath the mundane drama of everyday life lurks an older story, a darker story about a monster in the woods. A mile and a half south of Woodland, a road turns left off Highway 41 and leads back into the woods. Several years ago, a group of ghost hunters followed that road two miles before they pulled over and parked their car. They gathered their equipment and made their way about 200 yards into the trees where they found a cemetery enclosed by a low wall. They put down their equipment and began setting up for their investigation. They walked around the graveyard taking photos, shooting video, and taking measurements. They stood around asking questions in the dark, holding out their voice recorders, hoping for a response. Most of their attention was focused on one specific grave. Legend said that it was the grave of a monster. There were different versions of the story, but someone or something had terrorized Talbot County over 160 years ago. Something had roamed these woods seeking out the nearby farms where it slaughtered the livestock. It did not eat what it killed. It seemed content merely to revel in the bloodshed. Eventually, it was stopped amidst much controversy and finger-pointing. But there were rumors that it was starting again. Animals in the area were being killed, and people were beginning to wonder if the monster had returned. Or if not the monster, then perhaps the ghost of the monster. The ghost hunters continued their investigation, looking and listening under the light of a full moon. As was so often the case, it was really rather anticlimactic. After all of the preparation, all of the anticipation, there was nothing there. 
just a group of people standing around in the dark, disappointed that their ambitions of finding some lingering connection to the past would once again go unfulfilled. But then they heard it. Something was moving in the woods that surrounded the small cemetery. Something big. They couldn't see anything. Even though the cemetery was lit by the full moon, the woods were cloaked in shadows. They could hear the rustling of leaves, the snapping of branches. They could hear it breathe. Then it started to growl. They thought it sounded like a large dog. They gathered their equipment and quickly made their way back to the car. They tried to reassure themselves. There was no need to panic. It must have been a dog. There was nothing to be afraid of. The Talbot County werewolf was just a legend, a story. It couldn't be real, could it? Some stories of the past come down to us as history. They are recorded, cataloged, and examined with almost scientific detail. Those stories tell us about the people who have come before us, who they were, and what they did, and they help us to better understand the modern world in the context of the human experience. But there are other stories, those that were not written down until recently. For decades, in some cases centuries, these stories were passed from person to person, from mouth to ear, and in the course of their journey, these stories have changed. Given enough time and enough mouths and enough ears, it is possible for a person to become a monster. This story belongs to Talbot County, Georgia, and it traces its origins back to the 19th century. In the mid-1800s, Talbot County was even more rural, more disconnected from the outside world than it is today. The area known as Pleasant Hill was the home to wealthy farmers. Those fields not planted with crops were used for grazing land, for herds of cattle and flocks of sheep. The elite of this community lived comfortably in large homes, enjoying every luxury available to them in that time. Those that worked managed the running of their farms and plantations, leaving the physical labor to the African slaves, who lived in the smaller, more Spartan cabins invariably located a short distance from the main houses. Some left the running of their properties to hired managers and focused their attention on their individual interests. A few among the younger generation lacked a desire to become farmers and dreamed of making their own fortunes in other ways. One of these young people was William Gorman, who was under the thrall of the gold fever that was sweeping the nation at that time and dreamed of starting his own mine. Convincing his family to fund his ambitions was proving to be problematic. William was expected to oversee the management of the farm and the sheep. His job was to supervise the shepherds. One morning he woke, dressed, ate his breakfast, and left the house to look in on the shepherd who had been watching over the flock during the night. Even though the sheep were enclosed in a pen, William had assigned someone to keep watch because there had been reports of wolf attacks in the area. Much to his disgust, he found that the shepherd had fallen asleep. He woke him, and the two of them went to look in on the flock. 
what they found shocked them. The sheep had been slaughtered. Dead bodies littered the pen. As they examined the carnage, they realized that none of the sheep were missing. They were all still there. Even more strangely, none of them had been eaten. Whatever had killed them had done so seemingly just for the joy of killing. William began the process of organizing the cleanup of the pen and the disposal of the carcasses. He decided that after speaking with his family about the incident, he should contact his neighbors. Something had to be done about this. Later that day, he cleaned himself up, put on a fresh pair of clothes, and got ready to pay a very special visit to a neighbor of which he was particularly fond. William had been courting Sarah Burt, a daughter of one of the wealthier families in the area, and he had promised to call on her. But as he rode towards the Burt farm, he couldn't turn his thoughts away from the slaughter of the sheep. There had been problems with predators in the past, but never anything like this. Despite their wealth, the Burt farm was much like the others in the area. Mildred Owen Burt, the matriarch of the family, had been widowed at the age of 37. She spent much of her time looking after her children. Two of them, Joel and Emily, were attending school in Europe, while two daughters, Sarah and Isabella, remained at home. Mildred had spent time traveling in Europe, and it was there that she had developed an interest in the occult and the supernatural. The precise dimensions of that interest are unknown, but she purchased a number of books on those subjects to add to her already large library. What role, if any, those books would play in what followed is also unknown. After hearing the disturbing news about the slaughter of the sheep, Mildred left William and Sarah to talk and went to the library to check on Isabella. Isabella spent most of her time in the library. Of all of her children, Isabella was the most troubled. She was socially awkward and suffered from significant health problems, most notably severe insomnia, a condition for which the doctor had prescribed a syrup containing opiates, a syrup that Isabella had become addicted to. Sometimes when it ran out, she became so restless that she would leave the house in the middle of the night and wander off into the woods. Now, with the news that some type of dangerous animal was roaming the area at night, she worried about her daughter even more. Soon, there was another attack. This time, cattle on another farm were killed. But this time, someone had caught a glimpse of the creature. They said that it appeared to be a very large wolf. The local property owners gathered and discussed their options. They formed a hunting party and spent the next several nights scouring the forest, but their efforts were in vain. It was nowhere to be found. A bounty was placed on the wolf, and men with muskets set out into the woods, but it continued to elude them, and their livestock continued to die. William was soon contacted by a man who was considered something of a stranger in the community. He had immigrated to the United States from Bohemia and kept to himself for the most part, but he was anxious to talk to William. The man told him that in his home country, he had seen attacks like this before, that this was not a normal wolf, that they were hunting a werewolf, 
a person who was a follower of Satan and had been given the infernal ability to transform into a dangerous beast. He gave William a large silver crucifix and told him to melt it down and make bullets. He said that it was the only way to kill the monster. When William next visited the Burts, he sat in the parlor with Sarah and Mildred. Even Isabella joined them this time. William described the continuing efforts to find the giant wolf, and Sarah said that she hoped they would kill it soon. Isabella became enraged at this and physically attacked her sister. William sat there awkwardly as their mother separated them and sent Isabella back to the library. Before he left, William gave Sarah a pistol. It was loaded with one of the silver bullets. He told her to keep it close, just in case. On the night of the next full moon, William joined the hunting party as it patrolled the woods. After hours of searching, the men became separated amongst the trees. Someone yelled and a shot rang out. They heard what sounded like a scream and then everything went quiet. They made their way toward the area of the commotion and found one of the hunters. He said that he had looked through the trees into a clearing and had seen the shadow of the wolf in the moonlight. It appeared to be standing up straight on its hind legs. He fired his gun. He was sure that he had hit it, but he had not gone any closer to check. The men moved into the clearing and continued their search, sure that they would find the wounded animal, but they were too late. The wolf was gone. However, their search was not in vain. According to one version of the story, they did find something. The wolf's paw, severed by a gunshot, lay in a pool of blood on the ground. One of the hunters placed it in a bag, and they went home. This version goes on to say that the next day, when one of the hunters opened the bag to examine the paw, he was horrified to discover that it contained a human hand. Soon after that night, William again paid a visit to the Burt farm. He was surprised to find that this time, he was turned away. The family wouldn't see him. Not long after, he began to hear rumors of what had really happened the night they had hunted the wolf. There is another story about what happened that night. Another version of events seen from a different perspective. That same night, as the hunters roamed the woods near the Burt farm, Mildred saw Isabella leave the house in the middle of the night. This time she followed her. Sarah saw her mother leave and retrieving the pistol given to her by William, walked into the forest as well. Mildred found Isabella standing in a clearing. She could hear the hunting party in the woods all around them. She called out to her daughter and when Isabella turned to face her, she was holding a knife. Sarah arrived to see her sister raise the knife and charge at her mother. She raised her pistol, but before she could fire, there was a flash of light from the woods. A shot rang out. One of the hunters had fired first. The bullet struck Isabella's hand, the one that was holding the knife, and she collapsed on the ground unconscious. Mildred and Sarah quickly carried Isabella back to the house. A doctor was summoned, and over the preceding days, her wound was tended to. Mildred knew that rumors were already beginning to spread through the town. 
by bringing a doctor to save Isabella's life, they had guaranteed that the secret could not be kept. It was Isabella who had been leaving the house at night, sneaking onto their neighbors' properties and butchering their livestock in the dark. She decided that when Isabella was well enough, she would have to take her away. As soon as Isabella was fit to travel, Mildred took her to Paris. After they departed, the residents of Talbot County were left with many questions about what had really happened. How did this curse find her? Was it those books in her mother's library? Was she a monster? Was she really able to transform into a werewolf? A giant beast with claws and fangs? How long would she be content to slaughter their livestock? When might she come for them? But lurid rumors hid an even more frightening possibility, that the transformation of Isabella Burt from girl to monster was internal, that there were no grotesque physical changes to warn them. What if all of the madness and rage, the capacity for violence, was hidden behind the eyes of a seemingly harmless girl, someone they had interacted with, someone who was a part of the fabric of their community? What if the monster was not out in the woods, but was in their midst, watching, anticipating? In Paris, Mildred began searching for someone who could help her daughter. She ultimately found a doctor who specialized in lincanthropy, a sickness of the mind that caused a person to believe that they were a wolf. It took its name from the mythological King Lycaon, who murdered and cooked his own child and offered the meal to the god Zeus to see if he would know what was in the food. Zeus knew and punished Lycaon by turning him into a wolf. Over time, there have been many different theories about how a person becomes a werewolf. In earlier times, it was connected with everything from witchcraft to curses to being conceived under a full moon. It was believed that becoming a werewolf drove men to murder and even resort to cannibalism. The most famous example being Peter Stump, also known as the Beast of Bedburg, who was put on trial in 1589. Under torture, he confessed to having become a servant of the devil at the age of 13, that as a reward for his service, he had been given a magical belt that allowed him to transform into a wolf. He had started killing sheep and cows but had eventually graduated to killing humans. Ultimately, he confessed to killing 14 children and two pregnant women. He and his wife and daughter were all executed. Most of us would have no trouble believing that at least mentally, it is all too easy for a person to transform into a monster. But how does one change a monster back into a human being, one capable of living, and functioning in society, one whose presence does not endanger her community. What happened to Isabella in Paris is unknown. Whatever form of treatment she received, whether it was physical, psychological, or spiritual, it seemed to work. Isabella returned to Georgia and lived out the rest of her days. But she was never embraced by the community. She never married. She died in 1911 at the age of 70. Even then, well into the 20th century, her burial in consecrated ground was a matter of some dispute 
among those who remembered her past. Though she seemed to be cured, for the rest of her life, Isabella never escaped the shadow of the wolf. That shadow now looms over a forgotten cemetery in rural Georgia, a place where you can stand at the grave of Isabella Burt under the light of a full moon and shout questions into the night, where you can grasp at the tendrils of the past and hope for answers, a place where you can hear something moving in the darkness of the woods that surround you, where you can hear it breathe, hear the growl rumble in its throat, and you can tell yourself, it can't be real, it's only a story, it's only a legend. This episode of the Pleasing Terrors podcast was written by Mike Brown. It was recorded by Mike Shear at Charleston Sound Studios. It was produced by Podcast Motor. If you enjoyed this episode, please support this podcast by rating and reviewing it on iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever platform you prefer. Ratings and reviews will make it easier for listeners to find us. And remember to hit the subscribe button. For more creepy news, history, and folklore, please visit us at Pleasing Terrors on Facebook and Twitter and at pleasingterrors.com. Thank you for listening. I'll speak with you again in two weeks.